Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont and Associates. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review, is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news and topics. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Well, thank you for joining us for UTL Radio Week in Review. This week, we're going to be discussing Coca-Cola's trademark challenge, a new directive on gender identity and discrimination, ban-the-box laws, abandoned chickens, a psychic lawyer, and much more. But before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks on the Internet. Audible has a massive library of more than 100,000 audio programs, and they're providing our listeners with an exclusive offer just go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio and you can download a free audiobook, no strings attached. So, for example, we're going to be talking today in one of our first stories about Coca Cola. And if you want to learn more about the company and their advertising efforts, you could download Belching Out the Devil Global Adventures with Coca Cola by Mark Thomas absolutely for free. All you have to do is go over to that special URL, special website, audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio. I also want to remind you that your feedback is so important. It allows us to provide you with the best guests, information, and content possible. So please let us know what you think about today's shows and our other programs by posting on our social media pages, including Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, or by emailing us directly at info at utlradio.com. Links to all of our social media pages can be found on utlradio.com right in the header along with that button that allows you to get that free app. We'll talk about that later. And finally, if you'd like to join in today's discussion, please call into the show at 347-855-8831, and you can you know, come on live and, and talk about some of the topics that we're going to be discussing today. Again, that's 347-855-8831. Good morning, Bob. Believe it or not, today is the last show, the week in review, in September. Holy cow. It, it, right. When well, summer finally got here, so time started to fly a little quicker. It's it's really I can't believe it. It's October already. Well, you know Wednesday, but we're still getting uh, sure. 80 degree temperatures over here in in Jersey. <laughs> been probably the nicest stretch of weather we've had all summer because usually what it's been it's 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 you know you get 75, 77, 78, 80, and then it drops back down for a day or two. So this has been a nice. Over a week stretch, so yeah, I'm definitely not complaining. But it's been Let's nice. See. But yeah, it moves quicker. It does. Let's see what the, the, the winter has to bring. I'm sure it's not going to be good. I just feel it. Farmer's Almanac, all that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can talk to our <laughs> psychic lawyer later if I know what he thinks. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, and actually summer, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those things where people lose their minds and a couple stories. Uh, this week definitely will explain. <laughs> well, maybe it won't explain how some people think. I don't know. Uh, anywho, the uh, you know, in part of summertime, Coca-Cola. 
They're um, Coke Zero. Are you a, are you a, are you a calorie freak freak? You know what? I I was never a diet soda drinker, but um, I guess for the last fifteen twenty years, that's all I do drink. Even though it probably is going to kill me in the end. And I like what Coke Zero, by the way. <laughs> but I do it anyway. Oh, it is. It really isn't bad. Yeah. Well, they have uh, beat the trademark challenge. You know, that had nothing to do with Pepsi. If you're going to recall the Pepsi challenge back in the day, courthousenews.com telling us Coca-Cola did not violate Blue Spring Water's naturally zero mark with its zero line of soft drinks, a federal judge has ruled. Blue Spring Water Company sued Coca-Cola in federal court for violating its zero trademark that it uses to sell its naturally zero spring water. Blue Spring claimed it had proposed to sell its naturally zero water products to Coca-Cola, only to find out later that Coke had actually tried to market the term zero for its Sprite Zero drink and Coke Zero drinks, the other stuff uh, that they put out there. Coca-Cola introduced Sprite Zero, a zero-calorie soft drink, in the uh, U.S. in 2004, the same year Blue Springs stopped bottling the natural zero water. Well, Blue Spring indicated to start using the watermark again in 2010. It was already too late. By that time, Coca-Cola had introduced Coke Zero, Fanta Zero, Pib Zero, and other zero products. U.S. District Judge John Lee finding that Coca-Cola on Wednesday, uh, basically the ruling says that Blue Springs Zero Mark was not protectable because it was merely descriptive of the product. And even if the trademark were protectable, Blue Spring abandoned it in 2004 and never took action on its plan to reintroduce the naturally zero products into the marketplace. There's some ambiguity here, Peter. I mean, that, when they say it describes the product versus a name, how do they know the difference? Well, you know, we're going to talk about in some of these other stories how the law, this just illustrates this week, how the law is not black and white and how it really hinges upon um, a, a factual analysis on a lot of these business cases. But before we get that, I just do want to say that Coca-Cola won me over this summer with their campaign where they put on the label, share a Coke with. And every time my... Oh, my yeah, you and everyone else. Yeah, he'd go into the store and he'd come out with a with a bottle of Coke for me, and you know he'd take great pride in saying, "Share a Coke with Bob, share a Coke with Sandy." It was just on and on. Share a Coke with your pal. So I looked forward to that. <laughs> but let me answer your question. All right, so here's the story with this. Back when it was just a zero, just a word, when Blue Spring Water Company was. Um, was using the term naturally zero. It really was not identifiable with anything. I mean, as a matter of fact, I've never even heard of Blue Spring Water. But, you know, what what happened here is at the time Blue Spring tried to say, no, wait a minute, it identifies our company, there was no sort of marketing data, no sales data to show that customers attributed the term zero with Blue Spring. They just viewed it as zero. But when Coke came in and started using zero, um, it became distinctive. And, and that's where it, it's a factual analysis. Well, why is it distinctive? It's distinctive because when you say zero now, people associate these Coke products with zero, and that's supported by the sales and marketing efforts. So when this court looked at whether or not zero, the word zero, um, when applied to drinks, had a distinctive meaning, something that customers and consumers readily identify with Coca-Cola, they said it does. And they relied upon that sales and marketing data to say, look, this, this you know, product, Coke Zero, has such a massive following, it's made so many sales, therefore, you can now trademark 
that term zero. But when, you know, back when Blue Spring Water wanted to argue that it was their mark, right, even though they hadn't registered it, they had done nothing, uh, it wasn't distinctive at the time. So this is an interesting case because you can see how a term which is nondescript can become a distinctive trademarkable word once a company does something different with it. So it's and then strange. you've talked uh, in the past about the you know with you don't necessarily have to trademark something. It's a good idea to trademark it, but is this an example of where, like you had said, it becomes so distinctive in Coke's marketing, not Blue Springs marketing? Had Blue Springs marketing been more nationwide, been more recognizable as a zero, regardless of whether or not they had trademarked it at the time, would they have a better footing? They might have a better argument. Um, but I, I think that it would be so, again, factually dependent. If Blue Springs was turning the type of numbers that Coke was or is now, sure. then you know you could argue that there's a mark. But remember, the distinction that, that I've talked about in the past is the distinction between copyright and trademark. So copyright law is different because it's the written word, and, and copyright protection runs from the time that you actually create the work, you author the work. And that's easy to go back and say, look, I'm the author because here's my computer file, here's when I generated this book, um, and the protection that you get is automatic. You can get injunctive relief even if you don't file. Trademark's slightly different because the fact that you haven't registered the mark is really uh, a, a very um, heavy contributing factor as to whether or not this mark actually identifies your product. So you can you can kind of sneak in and register a mark, even if another company is using it, and you're going to have a tougher time versus a copyright issue, if that makes sense. Sure, no, absolutely, yeah. So so it's always a good idea, obviously, to trademark something you're not not creating necessarily, but a logo, a branding, yeah. something that identifies your product. That's right, and you know if if. Blue Spring had tried to, and I, you know, nobody's quite sure yet because nobody's poured through the records, whether or not Blue Spring actually did apply. If they had applied with no sales figures, they would, they would have been rejected because um, the trademark office would have said it's non-distinctive. So you can you can see how by Coke making the product, and interesting, right? When Coke came out with the zero lines back in in what was it, 2004? Right, it's 2004, right? They didn't go and try to trademark yes. because their lawyers probably oh, said to them, "You can't trademark this yet." So you know, now they've built this this brand up over time. Now you can trademark it. So that's how it works. Interesting. That's how it works. <laughs> you never know. But again, hey, Coke. Like I think I would I would compare Coke to uh, probably one of your uh, analogies with Disney. These guys are big. They got a ton of lawyers. They got a ton of money. They're going to come in like a bull in a china shop. Yeah, Blue Spring, you have no chance. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, well, other people do have a chance. The OFCCP publishing a directive on gender identity and sex discrimination, according to GDSUPRA.com. The Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs has published a directive on gender identity and sex discrim discrimination. The directive clarifying that agency guidance on discrimination for the base sex under Executive Order 11246 includes gender identity and transgender status. 
The directive follows a statement by the Secretary of the Department of Labor in June indicating that the agency is updating its enforcement protocols and non-discrimination guidance to clarify that the DL provides the full protection of the federal non-discrimination law that it enforces to individuals on the basis of gender, identity, and transgender status. Now, EO 11246 prohibits federal contractors and subcontractors, those are people working for the government, from discriminating on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or, or national origin. The OFCCP interprets the non-discrimination obligations under that executive order in accordance with Title VII. Title VII does not specifically prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity or transgender status. The directive notes case law interpreting that statute has found that discrimination on the basis of gender identity or transgender status is sexual discrimination. Now, the directive clarifies that it deals with discrimination on the basis of gender identity only as a form of sexual discrimination. It does not address gender identity as a standalone protected category, which is the subject of EO 13672. This goes into broadening that whole, you know, if you're going to be an employer, you better be careful of what you do because you don't know anymore if you're not following along and playing by the rules of who you're going to discriminate against. And gosh and golly, you better be up to, up to date. This uh, is this is this more landmark than it is, or is this just kind of making sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed when it comes to the OFCCP? Well, I think it actually is sort of a landmark um, decision because the way they've looked at it is, as you as you you know mentioned a minute ago, um, transgender discrimination is a form of sexual discrimination which is already available to people under Title VII. So the um, the directive essentially says and clarifies for people that yes, if, if it's a transgender issue, it is rolled up into the idea of sexual discrimination and therefore protected by Title VII. But interestingly enough, right, now remember this is a directive that came from um, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance. Last Thursday, the first ever lawsuit was filed by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, uh, alleging that there was discrimination against transge transgender workers in violation of Title VII. This is the first lawsuit of its kind. Uh, they were filed, well, actually, uh, since Thursday, another one was filed, Florida and Michigan. And they're accusing employers of discriminating against two separate trans, uh, transgender employees. So it's interesting now because this directive came out last week, and then at the end of the week, you've got two lawsuits filed by the EEOC. So it's almost as if this directive clarified issues, but the EEOC had already identified that this is um, a good idea because to investigate a case and then file a suit, it takes a little bit of time. So it seems to you know have hand in hand work together, but it's interesting because now you've got you've got these two cases out there and they're filed under Title VII violations of civil rights, and um, you know I think that you're going to see more and more. I mean I have no idea what percentage of people in the U.S. are transgender. I and my naive thinking would think it's a small group, but it must be big enough to warrant. You know, um, sort of these lawsuits and and more of um, a definition of it, more of a, a way of defining whether it's sexual discrimination or not. So I guess there's a large population of transgender. 
Well, I think even if the population is small, they have, they have I say, grouped themselves or aligned themselves with, you said the lesbian community, you had the homosexual community, the bisexual community, you had all these different communities, then they finally all realized, hey, we're really fighting the same thing here. We have a separate view of ourselves that is not accepted as the mainstream or the norm, and that's discrimination. And so the, the, the four or, or more groups have uh, recognized that they have the same dog in the same fight. They just need to get the same dog. And that's probably why I think you're seeing more and more of this now, and it's become a bigger issue because there's, although there may be a small percentage of that particular group, the transgenders, it's a larger group now as a whole with the same dog. Yeah, and with the EEOC behind them, it's going to really turn the tide because I don't know um, how how well publicized this was, but in 2007, uh, there was a 10th Circuit Court of Appeals case, and in it, there was a Utah Transit Authority bus worker who wanted to use the woman's restroom, but she was transgender, and the, the 10th Circuit said no. Um, there was no violation, there was no discrimination. So in 2007, you know, here we're saying that it's okay to fire on the basis of transgender, and now in 2014, you know, it's come full circle. The EEOC is on board. That's why they're filing these lawsuits. And I think you're going to see a lot of these sort of lawsuits come out of the woodwork because when you go back and you look at 2007 and you're thinking to yourself, if you're a lawyer, right, and you've got clients in 2008, 2009, and they come to you, you go back, you look at these cases, and you say, well, there's really a small chance of me winning. This is a Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals case, so I'm going to tell my, my client that they don't have a good case. Sure. Now now it's you know kind of opens the floodgates. So I think we're going to see a lot of, uh, of cases, and I think that they're going to be relatively interesting because the bathroom case is interesting. That, is, yeah, that opens a whole new door, pardon the pun. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, how do you, you you look at sports arenas? You look at a large, uh, you know, large gatherings of people that typically always go, hey, boys over here, girls over here. Well, that's based on physical attributes. As you start to re-identify yourself and you change or not change what your primary physical attribute is and you go to the other place, what protection is going to be in that facility for you and for the others in the area? So, I mean, pretty much are we going to see places going away from, I think we've talked about a week or two ago, the non-stalled bathrooms. Everything's going to be with its own door. Well, if you're in the middle of a, of a sex change, I guess you have to use the family room. You know, the family <laughs> yeah. room between the men's room and the ladies' room. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. There's there yeah. There's the yeah. There's that. Sometimes there's the unisex room, if you uh, depending on where you're where you're uh, where you're located and, and what type of facility. So yeah, there's 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 an outlet, I suppose. Yeah. Um, see where that but, goes. Uh, I think there's a. <laughs> sorry, that was unintended. <laughs> the uh, as, as things get uh, further down the road, though, I'm obviously with with newer construction, it's going to start to become more and more. I'm sure. Uh, a consideration. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned it at the you know the beginning of the story. Employers do have to be aware of the changes because we're in a rapidly changing business environment and ignorance of the law is never an excuse, it's never a defense. So you do have to follow this. If you have a lawyer or you have 
um, some sort of internal compliance department if you're a larger firm. These are issues that you need to be aware of. You need to follow the EEOC guidelines and see what's you know, sort of in the works. And if you're a smaller company, you have to either do it yourself or you know, have, a, have a lawyer work with you. But compliance is a super, super important topic that people completely, completely overlook. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit about compliance because there's some stories um, and some cases coming out this week or expected to, to come out this week talking about compliance so we can you know sort of touch on that next week sure and and, and eo 11 does only specify for federal contractors and subcontractors but that's going to spread so if you're not dealing with the government you may as well get on board well yeah and that's what the eeoc because those eeoc lawsuits filed last week what one person was an employee at an eyeglass place or an eye doctor. So, you know, yes, the federal government has this in place for them, but these guidelines, like you said, it's already spread, two lawsuits filed. So if you're transgender and you've been discriminated against, go see a lawyer because you've got rights. Go to the EEOC. Sure, absolutely. Um, the Ninth Circuit, confirming consultants and other middlemen may be vicariously liable under the TCPA. Shifting gears hard on this one, the GDS UPRA, but staying on the federal lines, the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Ninth Circuit, infamous Ninth Circuit, if you will, issued a decision in Gomez versus Campbell Ewald Company, holding that the defendant marketing consultant could be liable under the Telephone Consumers Protection Act for unsolicited text messages that it arranged for a separate third party to send on behalf of a client, which happened to be the U.S. Navy. The TCPA and regulations implementing it government, excuse me, it govern telemarketing and do not call issues, as well as automated calls to cell phones and pre-recorded calls to residential lines and cells. Under the TCPA, those who receive calls in violation of the statute or rules enjoy a private cause of action, which we'll talk about that in a second, and may collect up to $500 in statutory damages per call, which can be tripled for willful violations. The Ninth Circuit said it has long been clear that when a seller of goods or services or other entity hires a third party to place calls or send texts on the seller's or entity's behalf, and the call or text violates the TCPA or FCC rules, both seller entity and the third party may be held liable. The Ninth Circuit's decision thus makes it clear that so long as the requirements for vicarious liability, as outlined by the FCC and in common law, are met, all parties to the role in the transmission of calls or messages that violate the TCPA may be liable for the uh, calls. Now, two two things there I wanted to ask about, and we can clarify some other things as well. Is first of all, Peter, for everyone, go through private causes of action and vicarious liability. All right. So, a private cause of action is typically um, the right of an individual to bring a suit on his own behalf. Uh, there are examples of things that you don't have a private cause of action for. So most of them are where there's a governmental agency, whether it's state or federal, that would sort of control or patrol certain elements of various um, issues. So, for example, in New Jersey, under the New Jersey Consumer Protection Act, it is illegal for a store owner to fail to price groceries. Right? So if you go into a small bodega or a small grocery store or a large grocery store, if the items are not marked with a price, either by shelf tag or individually labeled, you're violating the Consumer Fraud Act. However, 
that's something that's controlled by the state attorney general's office. And so if you walk into a store and you come up and you say, Eureka, I found 500 cans that are unmarked. I'm going to just, you know, go collect. That's not how it happens. You go, you know, you tell the the state and, and they have their own attorneys who will administratively fine or sue or however they're going to do it, the store. But you don't have a private right of action for that. Um, I think they do that primarily to prevent people from going into stores looking for unmarked, unpriced <laughs> items and then collecting thousands and thousands of dollars. But that would be an example. Whereas if you go to hire a home inspector and that home inspector doesn't comply with the regulations that are set forth in the administrative code and, and it constitutes a violation of a consumer fraud law, well, that happened directly to you. It's got a major impact. It's got financial oblig- or implications. So for something like that, you would have your own private right of action. So a private right of action is your ability to sue for something that is unlawful that happens to you. And, and in this case, it's the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. So you do have a private right of action because while there's a government entity that sort of patrols it, it's happening to you, and the legislator had, you know, legislative branch just said, you know, private right of action. It's okay. Um, I think that the behind-the-scenes look at private rights of action, I think it depends on how much money is it going to cost the defendant, who are the lobbying parties, um, you know, do they want a private right of action to be able to sort of redirect companies who are doing bad things. There, there's so many behind-the-scenes elements to it, but all we need to know right now is private right of action allows you to sue. And then vicarious uh, liability. I'm sorry, real, real quick, in, in yeah. relation to private cause of action, would the uh, antonym of that be a, a civil suit where it affects a large swath of people, maybe not directly or on purpose, but it affects more people, and so you have to belong to that group to access well, that's that's more along the lines of a class action. So, okay. so can you have a large group of people that have experienced some sort of, of violation of the law and still have no private right of action? And the answer is yes. It could be something that even though you've got 500 people or 1,000 people and you think to yourself it's a good class action, if there's no private cause of action then the only remedy is to have the administrative element, whether it's the state or the federal government, go out and penalize the offending party. You don't have that right, even though there's a a lot of you. So class actions are prohibited if there's no private right of action. Civil suits are prohibited. It's just up to the governmental entity to, to, to punish the defendant. And I like the the, the uh, example you had given about the, the pricing on a shelf. And I would think, would it fall under a class action situation if you said, hey, yeah, I paid 10 bucks for this, I paid 6 I paid 12 Now you have a, a group of people that can go back and, 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 and press that forward via class action. Is that correct? You could if there was a private right of action. But that opens okay. up a whole other area because is there commonality of the claims and and here you've got people paying a variety of different prices in your example. So it probably wouldn't be certified as a class. But okay. Okay. I think you just have to look at the statute. If the statute allows for a private cause of action, you're good to go. You can file a lawsuit. If it doesn't, 
SOL. Your lawyer will take care of that. <laughs> yeah. All right, now vicarious liability, and that's really what this case hinges upon. Vicarious liability is liability that a supervisory party, so let's say an employer, for example, um, bears for the conduct of a subordinate, an, an employee. So um, because certain relationships create vicarious liability in and of themselves, for example, an employer-employee relationship automatically creates vicarious liability, meaning that the employer can be liable for the actions of the employee. Um, you know, you have to be very, very careful as an employer. And there are a, a wide array of sort of arguments and things that take you outside the realm of vicarious liability. So, for example, you have an employee who is a milk truck delivery driver. I don't know why I, that came to my head, but, uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking of the guy with a little, you know, six glass sure. milk crate going up to the door. But in any event, um, you know, you've got this guy who's your employee, and he's on his route, and in the course of delivering the milk, he needs to make a quick stop to go to the bathroom at a rest area. And he gets into an accident. Okay, so that's scenario one. Scenario two, same guy delivering milk. He decides that he forgot to pick up his dry cleaning. So he goes 15 minutes out of his way to go pick up his dry cleaning. He gets into an accident. So which one of those examples is the employer vicariously liable for the actions of the employee? Assuming that the employee caused the accident in both cases, you ready for the answer? I'm going with the bathroom break. <laughs> I'm going with the bathroom break. Okay. okay. It is the guy who went for his dry cleaning. He is the one. Oh. Who, you're not vicariously liable for him. Okay. You are, so yeah. you're correct. You're vicariously liable for the bathroom break guy. Why? Well, the argument is that the bathroom break guy did not deviate substantially from his employment task. He had to go to the bathroom. It's sort of uh, foreseeable that he would have to go to the bathroom and he made a stop. Whereas the dry cleaning guy deviated from the scope of his employment, took on a task that was solely for his own benefit, and therefore even though he was in the course of his, his um, work, he wouldn't be deemed to be in the course of his employment and therefore the employer would not be vicariously liable for him. So vicarious liability is uh, a very interesting concept. In this case, this Gomez versus Campbell, uh, the Navy, the U.S. Navy, is the defendant. Of all people. <laughs> well, wait, because this is, this is really, really fascinating. I really found a lot of interest. Uh, it took a lot of interest in this case. The Navy contracts with a third-party vendor, and the purpose of the third-party vendor is to try to solicit people to join the Navy. And, you know, so they send out these texts. And here's the text. Here's the, the actual text. Oh, you have the text? Oh, great. Oh, That's good. Destined for something big? Do it in the Navy. Get a career, an education, and a chance to serve a greater cause. For a free Navy video, call, and then they give you the number. So this is the text message that Gomez received on his phone. So, A, statute, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, provides for a private right of action. So check that off. He can potentially file a lawsuit. Now we look to see if there's liability. Well, this case held that the Navy 
was vicariously liable for the actions of the third-party vendor that they hired based upon an agency relationship. So now you've got liability. And because the law is very, very clear in this Telephone Consumer Protection Act, which essentially says that it's unlawful, it shall be unlawful for any person within the United States or any person outside the United States, if the recipient is within the United States, don't you love the way these things are written, uh, (laughs) to make any call other than a call made for emergency purposes or made with the prior express consent of the called parties using any automatic telephone dialing system, so on and so forth. So Legally, should be qualified as a separate language. should be bilingual if you can speak it. That's right. But the <laughs> crux of this, there's so many interesting components here. So let's take them one by one again. Private right of action, Gomez can sue. Vicariously liable. Is the Navy vicariously liable for the actions of its third party? And the answer to that was yes, based upon an agency relationship. And an agency relationship is is created um, under four circumstances that are, are somewhat, they get to be complex, so I'm not going to go into them, but they're contract, ratification, estoppel, and necessity. But in this case, the Navy directed the activities of this third-party vendor. The Navy said, push out this text. So they did it. So they're vicariously liable. Now the next question is, I read you the statute, right? It says that it's unlawful to send out any automatic telephone call. Is a text message a telephone call under the definition of the statute? And here's where I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the law is not black and white. Well, when this law was put into effect, text messaging wasn't so prevalent as it is today. Right, right, you're right. You may have had a pager, but you didn't necessarily get a text. Exactly. So now they've got to look at the legislative intent of this old law and say, what did they really intend when they enacted this original Telephone Consumer Protection Act? And this court, the Ninth, uh, the Ninth Circuit, um, says, well, a text message is a call. So therefore, you violated the act, and uh, that's, that's pretty much the analysis of the case. So look at how many components, how many legal components are in this case it's really interesting. It certainly makes a very good, for anybody interested in the law itself, um, it's a really good, interesting case to dissect. And the most interesting thing to me was the fact that there, there were the Navy, their contractor, and then the subcontractor all are involved in that. And it just so it goes to show you that you really know what your, and, and make sure you have it documented, what your, your contractors are doing. And it's going to come back on you if you're not insulated, because chances are that third party or the Navy could have signed a contract with the third party that said, hey, if if you do something outside of this, you're on your own and you're held liable, wouldn't they? Well, they could have, but that's the real interesting sure. part of the agency. Okay, so agency is the – it's determined by the extent of control that the original company, in this case the Navy, would have over its subordinates. So even if there was a contract in place that said uh, you're fully responsible for your actions, third-party vendors, you are completely on your own, even if that was in place, the court Mm -hmm. could say, wait a second, that doesn't apply here because you, the Navy, directed the third-party vendors to do what you wanted them to do. You exerted control. You had supervisory powers over them, and therefore 
There is no agency relationship. Mm. There is vicarious liability. So that's not there. But the one thing that they could have done, and I would have to look at the contract, and I'm sure it's there. I think this is probably uh, an issue of no agency relationship. But when you have contracts with third-party vendors, or anyone for that matter, you need to have some language in there talking about defense and indemnification. So if you, the third-party person or vendor, you are negligent or you do something that is um, the, the, the basis of a lawsuit, you would be obligated under a defense and indemnification provision in a contract to defend and hold harmless the individual or entity that hired you. So I would have to look and see what happened here, but what I suspect is that the court simply said agency relationship is created because you exerted such direction and control. So call them whatever you want, but they're agents. (laughs) Basically making, if if that clause was there, it really didn't matter. Exactly. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. (laughs) Yeah, that was uh, the most interesting thing, like I said, how that relation developed, and of course the Navy was involved, so apparently uh, (laughs) odd that the government violates its own set of rules. Yeah, right. (laughs) I have a couple stories that actually tie together today. Um, Rochester following Buffalo's lead in passing ban the box legislation. JDSUPRA.com again telling us that Buffalo joined numerous local, state, and jurisdiction adopting some form of ban-the-box legislation, and Rochester followed their lead. More specifically, it covers employees that will no longer, well, basically employers will no longer be able to require an applicant to check a box or respond to oral or written inquiries concerning his or her criminal history prior to an initial employment interview. If the interview is conducted, the employer must inform the applicant whether or not a background check and criminal world anyway, will be conducted before employment is to begin. Now, excluded from the ordinance are applicants for positions in the city's police or fire departments or employers hiring for police officer or peace officer positions, employers hiring for licensed trade or professions such as physicians, attorneys, including interns and apprentices for such positions are permitted to ask applicants the same questions asked by trade or professional licensing body pursuant to New York State or federal law. Now, employers who violate this law may be subjected to a civil action or a proceeding Um, or or for a proceeding injunctive relief, damages, or other appropriate relief in law or in equity by a party aggrieved within one year of the alleged violation. Meaning basically you got one year statute of limitations or kids, if you think you got got ousted because of that, get on the stick and get a tink. Um, This is a lot about giving people a second chance, obviously. Um, What's your position on it? And and, and obviously uh, New Jersey, we'll talk about them in just a second. Well, you know, I think it's really... It's hard because here's the theory behind this. The theory is that people who have criminal records, whether they're they're you know ex-cons or a minor crime or whatever it might be, people who have criminal records, the theory is by these civil rights groups because this is how this ban the box legislation came about through civil rights groups. Um, they basically argue that if you take somebody who has now been reintroduced into society and has you know, committed crimes in the past, but they're starting a new life. If you don't give them the opportunity to get a job, they're going to go back to a life of crime. That's their theory. Now, I don't know what it's based on. I haven't seen any statistics. I, I think that it's, you know, a foolish argument. I, I just don't 
you know, because that that goes back to all right. Well, then, does the criminal justice system not work? What's the purpose of the criminal justice system? System is it to punish? Is it to reeducate? And so, if you believe it's to reeducate, now you reintroduce someone into society, and if they can't get a job, they're going to go back to a life of crime. You know, I don't know. It's it's sort of a catch twenty two there, and it's this this circular reasoning that these people are looking at. But my issue with it is this: I represent a lot of businesses. And, you know, as a business owner, we talked on on this past Thursday with Lou Adler about human resources stuff, and we talked about the fact that every time you have to hire an employee, it costs you a ton of money, training, liability, and then when that person leaves or you have to fire them, you know, it costs you twice as much to get somebody new in, and that's not what you're paying them, It's, it's your time and the training and all that sort of thing. Now... I understand that um, you've got a screen for lawyers and doctors and police officers, but what about teachers? What about those people that are going to have a direct impact on your children? What about bus drivers? You know, um, they don't need to to be looked at to find out if they've been criminal. Uh, it, It doesn't make any sense to me. So I am... I am opposed to this uh, ban the box thing. I don't think that it protects the right people. Um, and and as we talk about some of these other stories, we're going to be able to touch on that. But I do understand how you want to give somebody a chance. You don't want to sort of say, all right, you know, you, you can't ever work again. Um, and most people, if you come in with that box checked off, you know that the employer automatically is going to discredit you and say, no, we're not interested. So sure. it's, it's a, I understand it, but at the same time, you know, you want to protect yourself. And in areas, especially education or daycare or bus driver, when you're dealing with children, um, you know, I think you really need to be screened properly. They're gonna. They they put attorneys through this board of ethics review. You know they know everything about me, uh, all the way back from you know when my my great 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 grandfather came from Russia, and and you know it's all these things that they know about you and all these things you have to comply with. But I'm not dealing with anybody's children. You know what I mean? <laughs> what about bus drivers? And we've sure. talked in the past about some of these stories and the cases that I had involving. Schools, so I, I don't know. I want to give people a fair chance, um, but at the same time, you know, it, it's it's sort of alarming. Now, I guess the argument is going to come back and say, well, most of these ban the box laws allow you to perform background checks. They're not banning background checks; they're just banning background checks before you interview them. So yes. you've got to interview them. And if you want to talk about New Jersey for a second, because this is applicable, why don't you do that, yeah. and then we'll tie them together. Yeah. Governor Christie just signed into, uh, into law a bill that would require companies to do exactly the same thing that Rochester's doing. Wait until they have interviewed job applicants before asking if he or she has ever been convicted of a crime. Measure signed into law at the same time Christie approved a proposal that established an alternative pretrial release system so that poor defendants aren't stuck in jail because they can't afford bail. So maybe those two got together, and that's how one got passed. I don't know. But Bill S-2124, which is known as the Ban the Box Law, um, basically says, hey, job applications that include a checkbox asking about an applicant's criminal background can't use them anymore. 
Christie saying, quote, this is a state that believes in uh, every life is precious. Everyone deserves a second chance. In New Jersey today, we're banning the box. Now, I'm wondering, again, you know, some of you have, it doesn't get, the story didn't get into the specifics of what are the characteristics of applications and jobs. You know, are you banning the box construction workers and not for teachers and police? They didn't, didn't get that specific with that particular um, article. So is New Jersey, you know, you're there. What are you hearing? It's, it's ban the box for everyone except for protected groups like police, lawyers, doctors. Um, education. Such is the same as New York, then. Yeah, it's the same as New York. And, and the problem that I have with it is you're going to make somebody sit down and you're going to make them interview you. And while an interview doesn't take, you know, two hours of your life, if you are interviewing numerous people for a position, you're going to be spending time reviewing their materials, preparing for the interview, interviewing them, and then you're going to do a background check and find out, oh, by the way, um, I think it was just last week, I think it was on, on, on the Monday show, we talked about a client that I had who had hired somebody to go do, they were a cleanup company. Did we talk about that last Monday? Yes. I, think, I can't remember if it was last Monday or the Monday before. Yeah. Yeah. So just to refresh everybody's recollection, there was a client that came in who had hired an employee. They were an environmental cleanup company. They had been working with this employee for six months. And they never did a background check, and they never had him, um, you know, sign anything that says I've had a, a, a conviction or not. And turns out that when the parent company said, "Now I want you to go and retroactively background check people," they found out that this guy was like, you know, a child molester, and he's in people's homes cleaning up their their you know environmental issues. And then of course, now what do we do? Um, so, I don't know. I have a problem with this. I think that if there's a better solution to be had, it might be in expungement because expungement is an application that you make to the court and you ask them to wipe your record clean based upon a variety of factors. The time that's passed since you've committed the crime, the nature and severity of the crime, and it's up, for the, up to the court to decide whether or not this sort of criminal act can be expunged from your record. I would almost rather see them sort of loosen the uh, restrictions on the expungement laws where you can go in and, and you know, like for example, possession of, of marijuana, small, small marijuana, small joint, or whatever it might be. Uh, you're a kid, you're a young adult, and it's a one-time thing and you were arrested for it. I would almost be able to see that that should be expunged from your record if you've made a mistake. But well, let me child- push that a little bit further, though, when you start to talk about I mean, and that's a great example because marijuana, I don't want to say it affects no one, but it's, it's, it's fairly docile um, versus right. a lot of applications asking about felony convictions. Now you get into a right. situation where someone maybe at a younger age was muling for someone and and got picked up, you know, in, in a sting operation. Now they have a felony, and it's been 20 or 30 years. Is that something that would get expunged as well? You know, probably not because of the nature of, of the crime. Um, I think that once you get up into felonies, and mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I mean, at some point, right, you as an individual have to be held accountable for the actions that you've done. And if you made a mistake when you were 25, 
and now you've you've reformed. Is it society's fault that you made a mistake when you were 25? Is it our fault? Should we now be forced to employ you or to not do a background check? We have to go interview you first and then find out that even though you're the perfect candidate, you know, you were a drug runner when you were in your 20s? Well, that's a great point right there. You know, after you interview the candidate, and, and maybe that's the purpose for the, for, the, for the rule. I mean, because obviously you it can is. still at that point make a decision. But does it give you that – does it give the individual that opportunity later in life, not that I'm for or against, um, to be able to get that second chance? You know what, gosh, golly, Johnny is the, the right candidate. He did have a little problem. What do we say? Well, let's try the guy. Yeah, I think that's exactly the purpose of this. Get them, okay, okay. get their foot in the door. You know, but you've got to remember too that the box says, "Have you ever been convicted of a crime?" So maybe there could be a uh, you know, if you if you don't like the expungement possibility, right? Although that forces the the reformed criminal to make an application. Yeah, that that, that leads you to a bigger argument. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, that puts the onus on the former criminal to say, all right, I want to make something of my life and I want to have this expunged. So now I file this application and, and then you can move on with your life. So, but if you don't like that one, well then what about a box that's still there that says, have you ever been convicted of a, you know, class ABC or whatever you want to call it, but sort of set out a system where you can weed out those insignificant convictions, if you will, like, you know, a twenty-year-old with with a marijuana cigarette, you know, Ponzi, does, for instance, <laughs> does that rise to the same level as somebody who's molested a child? You know, it's right. kind of like Gins Law in in New Jersey. There's a different level for each violation, each sexual offense against the child. There's class one, two, three, and and depending upon where you fall in that scale, you are either a registered sex offender or not. Why and not something do something? To your, ex, your expungement situation earlier that you talked about is, hey, now if someone does apply for expungement, and now the onus is back on the corrections community to say, yeah, I guess we did okay with this guy. Let's take it off his record. Right. I mean, I kind of like that idea because it takes those people that are serious about changing their lives, and it says, all right, you've reformed. Now go do the next thing, which is get this expunged off your record. Make it a little bit easier for you to expunge some of the lesser crimes, some of those crimes you made as a youth where they were a mistake, um, and let let the court decide. And then if it's expunged, it's wiped off your record, and then you can go and apply for a job. You know, civil rights groups would say that I was absolutely crazy, but I, I think that <laughs> representing businesses, you see how devastating it can be when you hire somebody who has, let's say, propensity to commit a crime, uh, be it a financial need-based issue or just, you know, something's not right. Um, I, I don't know. I, I like being able to ask so I don't have to waste my time conducting the interview. Now, so. Civil rights groups aren't necessarily concerned with the company, now, are they? Not at all. No, anyway, but in in another related story, actually, I wanted to get those two up there first because you know to talk about what has taken place legislatively in a couple states on the left coast, out in Fresno, California, according to SevenOnline.com, school district was unaware of a substitute's odd past. Stephen Diddy, he had been a substitute for a school district for seven years, 
Now, he first made headlines in 1996 when he was working as a local radio reporter while covering a sensational disappearance and the murder of a two-year-old, Matthew Morby. He confessed to the crime. He later then recanted and charges were dropped after Diddy was examined at a mental hospital. Obviously, he didn't have everything going on there. Well, this past week, he was taken in for observation again after unusual behavior in a classroom at Central High School. Questions about what actually happened in the classroom were partially answered on Tuesday by Superintendent Mike Berg. However, Berg did say that all legal background checks were made and Diddy was cleared. Now, Berg goes on to say that one, we do a fingerprinting process. It goes to the Department of Justice screening. It goes through the FBI. We do a California Commission on Teacher Credential Screening, all of which came up clear on that particular individual and still do today. However, Berg says Diddy's strange connection to the Morby case and possible mental health problems were not known. It turned out that to be essentially a medical issue, and medical issues are protected under HIPAA, and there was no means to have access to that, according to Berg. Carol Evans with the Fresco, excuse me, Fresno County Mental Health Advisory Board said it's very difficult to get help for family members in a mental health crisis situation. They do have a danger to themselves or others before law enforcement will write a 5150, no, not a Van Halen album. It's a form of uh, welfare and institutional code that will take them to the hospital. So there's this. This is this is a this isn't a crack. This is a crevice in the system, and whether or not that would have you know, it, I don't. I'm, it ties into that whole. You know, front end check because this guy wasn't convicted, but maybe you know you're taking away one box. You might want to add another box. Have you ever been institutionalized? And that opens up a whole another door for civil yep. rights advocates. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, 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 you know, the disturbing behavior that this guy exhibited in the classroom. He started talking about alcoholism, and then he wet his pants in front of the kids. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I, I think that all these civil rights laws, all these protections that, that people are offering, I'm not at all in in um, favor of a police state. Uh, to the opposite extreme, I think there's too much government control. But we're talking in this case about your rights under HIPAA to keep certain issues private versus the safety and well-being of children. So, you know, I, I think that there needs to be um, some sort of analysis into do we let someone who is tasked with the responsibility of of taking care of children get into the, the school if they've had some sort of psychological issue in the past? And it could be you know looked at on a case-by-case basis because I'm sure that 60% of America has at one point or another had some sort of psychological therapy whether it was after an accident, uh, the result of a divorce, whatever it might be. And I think that, you know, when you, you're tasked with taking care of children, there needs to be some sort of check. Because if you, you look at what the district did from a criminal background check standpoint, they did everything right. They did and, everything they could. Yeah. So I, I, you can't blame the school here at all. I think you have to blame HIPAA for protecting certain information. You know, you know what it's going to take? It's going to take somebody who has a mental disability, a latent, um, you know, psychological issue uh, that, that resurfaces after, you know, five, six, seven, ten years of teaching, and he goes and he kills a whole bunch of students, and then people will say, oh, well, wait a minute, maybe we should reconsider what HIPAA protects 
because maybe there's an exclusion that needs to be in play here. But until that happens, everyone's going to say, well, he only wet himself in front of the students. It's not that bad. <laughs> it could be worse, yeah. It could right. be worse, yeah, but let's, what, let's, what let's are we going to do? Let's wait till it gets worse. Let's wait till he comes in, and then he shoots everybody, and then you know whose fault it's going to be? It's going to be gun owners' fault. Meanwhile, this guy has a psychological problem. So, yeah, and a lot of people have always said, you know, hey, you know, you look at a lot of the the, the laws that are on the books or laws you want to pass, and you know, you you go back, you know, the, the tragedy in Sandy Hook. Any of those laws wouldn't have prevented what happened because I wasn't right. He was mentally ill, and uh, I mean that's a bigger argument. But that that mental health crevice has got to be closed, and in, in a lot of different areas. So. Yeah, I mean, it, you don't have to say, have you ever had therapy, because then that rules out most of America, and then, you know, nobody yeah, can exactly. get a job. But <laughs> if you can look at it from more of a, a of a tiered approach again, like we were talking about with the crime, what's the nature of the disability? What's the nature of, of, of you know, your, your problem? Because if you've got uh, a bipolar disorder and you're medicated, well, that's okay. A lot of people have that disorder so long as you're medicated. Um, but what if you have had psychotic episodes? Uh, you know, you've, you've admitted to committing a murder that you haven't committed. Things like that, that's not normal. You know, and I, I hate this to, you know, sound mean, but I don't want my children at risk simply no. because, you know, I would be willing to produce my own records if that were the case. I, I don't, you know, when you're when you're a lawyer, right, and you try to get admitted into other jurisdictions, a lot of them ask for your credit history. Now, how is that relevant to whether or not well, I can be a good lawyer in the jurisdiction? <laughs> well, it's the same that, same argument that insurance agency used in saying that, oh well, he has a bad credit history, so chances are he has more of a uh, possibility of committing fraud to collect money. Right, right. But you know, sure. if I'm if I'm willing, because I want to get admitted into the other state or whatnot, to give up my information, my credit information, would I not be willing to give up my medical records concerning psychological issues? Me, personally? No, go ahead. You know, if I was that sick, well, maybe I shouldn't be a lawyer. I'm only (laughs) half that sick. Uh, yeah, you only have to be have you only be so yeah. sick to be a lawyer, Peter. That's Sorry. right. <laughs> there's, there's definitely got to be something wrong with you. That's for sure. But <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I, I don't know. I have a really big problem with putting people in place that are going to be taking care of children who are not properly screened. And then you know, this is we're talking about public schools. What happens in the parochial schools? Do parochial oh, schools? Oh, less. Yeah, there's less checks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the school, a local school, they hired a uh, a teacher last year. This is a story that's just, you know, it's harmless. Nothing happened, but it's interesting. They hired a teacher who had taught at a uh, very prestigious Catholic high school and hired him, signed a contract, came in, started teaching. One day he got upset with something, walked out, and never came back. Now, what what did that do? Well, it upset the class the way that the the school had uh, sort of proportioned the students, what classes were being taught by what teacher, and it caused them, I'm sure, a great deal of aggravation, both from the parent standpoint, from the administrative standpoint, and from a financial standpoint. Now we've got to hurry up and get somebody in here. So, 
You know, it's a lot. It boils down sometimes to the needs of the few outweighing the needs of the many. Unfortunately, that's exactly right, Spock. <laughs> well, you know, we've talked time and time again about social media. Sometimes could be your undoing. Well. You never know who's going to be peeking at your Facebook page. A trucker's Facebook habit settled a case in court for an injured driver. Daily Report Online telling us that a trucker's snarky Facebook posts, including photos he admitted to snapping from behind the wheel, helped the driver he hit three years prior coax a $1 million settlement from the trucker's company and insurance carrier. Now, the uh, sedan driven by, it was involved in the accident driven by Kristen Meredith, was end up taken to the hospital to via ambulance, and she later had surgery to fuse some vertebrae in her lower back, according to her attorney. Well, Meredith filed a negligence suit in April 2013 against the truck driver, Jerry O'Reilly, his employer, Tri-Hours, and the National Interstate Insurance Company. Sought more than $75,000 at that time to cater for injuries and damages, as well as punitive damages. In its answer... The, uh, in May of 13, the defense claimed that Meredith caused the wreck. However, her attorney noted that the law enforcement cited O'Reilly for improper lane change, which he did plead guilty to and paid a fine. Now, the pivotal moment in the case occurred during a videotaped deposition of O'Reilly at his attorney's office. During questioning, O'Reilly at first denied using a camera, phone, or computer while driving, but he later admitted to taking photos while driving after Marathon's lawyer presented him with dozens of posts captured from O'Reilly's Facebook profile. In one post, O'Reilly included a photo of his truck cab, accompanied by a caption that read, My new bumper, now pull your thumb in front of me. <laughs> Just tempting people to do it. And another yeah. O'Reilly commented <laughs> below someone else's photo of a sedan boxed in by Riggs, saying that I've been there and done that also. I don't get mad, I get even, in reference to boxing in smaller cars. While none of the photos or comments were posted at the time of the wreck, the lawyer said he was able to use them to establish a pattern of distracted driving. O'Reilly, this gets even better, also admitted to changing his Facebook profile to private just prior to the lawyer's questions so that the photos were no longer publicly accessible. The lawyer said he anticipated O'Reilly would do that and instructed a staff member to monitor it through the disposition and then alert him if anything had changed. And sure enough, it did. <laughs> Here you go, this guy. Cost, him, cost his company and his insurance company a million bucks because he can't stay off of social media. Yeah, completely stupid. People think that they're untouchable. They can do whatever they want. But here's an interesting question. So this guy was actually texting and, and posting things while he was driving. A lot of the new cars coming out have now, if you're an Apple user, Siri integrated into the uh, the system, so it's voice activated, and you can send voice activated texts and posts to Facebook. So now, what's going to come out of this with these new vehicles on the road? Are and I guarantee you, you will. You'll have a defense attorney say there's no evidence to suggest that he physically typed any of this. He spoke it. And speaking is not necessarily uh, evidence of distraction, because if it were, you'd sure. never be able to have a conversation with anybody in the car with you. So, right. you know, just wait, because you know, given another four or five years when these cars that are, um, you know, fully integrated, like a lot of the luxury cars now, and, and they're very expensive, so not a lot of people have them, but... What's that going to do? You know, I, I, yes, I posted on Facebook and I did it with my voice. So yeah. even on the, the new iPhones, the new iPhone uh, or the new iOS system for 
the phones. Uh, if the phone is plugged in, you're able to activate Siri just by saying, hey, Siri, and then you can, you can tell her, you know, post this to Facebook, and she'll do it. And that's right <laughs> now, even if it's not integrated into your car. Now, does Siri become an, uh, <laughs> yeah, she's involved a in the crime? <laughs> she's a witness or an accomplice. <laughs> yep, she's going to be deposed. I, I can hear it now. I'm sorry. I cannot answer that question. <laughs> My lawyer right. has to turn <laughs> Start invoking the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> I cannot help you, Peter. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> I'll leave it to Apple. Well, and, and as and that's a, that's a good question actually. As 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 cars become more integrated with phone systems, where is the line going to end up to the responsibility of the driver yeah. and or the provider? Yep. Yeah, you know what? It's uh, it's something that we're going to see a lot of. Last year in New Jersey, they tried to. We've talked about it in the past. Tried to enforce a law that says if you text text someone that you know is operating a motor vehicle, even though you're at home, you can be liable. That was overturned, and they said, no, there's no liability or negligence on the part of the texter, even if they knew or should have known that the driver was operating a motor vehicle at the time. There's no you know, liability there. Uh, but it's going to, I think, open up a lot of, of lawsuits and a lot of questions because you know, what constitutes distracted driving what constitutes, you know, uh, texting. And we're going to have these definitions changing and evolving. Ten years ago, one of the key questions, because I used to defend insurance companies, and so one of the key questions you would ask somebody in an auto case is, you know, were you listening to the radio? Did you, do you have a CD oh, sure. player in the car? And then you'd try to make an argument that uh, you were playing with your CD player, you were playing with your radio, you weren't looking. Then when the iPods came out, it was... Do you have an MP3 player or an iPod? Were you looking at that? And I think auto manufacturers have responded to the fact that people cannot separate themselves from these devices. And so now they integrate the ability to control your you know, iPhone and, and other music devices directly from the dashboard um, and from your steering wheel. So I think that um, there's going to be a lot of, of interesting lawsuits that come up and a lot of uh, flip-flopping back and forth. But I think it's a really good defense. I wish I could patent that defense because I think it's a, I think it's a good defense. Now I've, I've given away my secret. There you go, yeah. Uh, it's all right. We will, uh, we'll, try to, we'll try to forget it. <laughs> now, this might have happened actually in your neighborhood, Peter. Uh, police say a New Jersey woman's personal traffic study was illegal, according to NJ.com. A, um, I, I, I had to look this up because I couldn't believe it was the name of a city or a brewery town. A Hohokus. Is that correct, Peter? It, it's actually an Indian word, and yeah, they named the town Hohokus. Yep. Oh, 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 my, my. <laughs> I was on the wrong syllable. I'm sorry. Hohokus. <laughs> Hohokus. <laughs> Santa Claus and Resident. the Pups. Hohokus. <laughs> That's what he does when he gets mad. Um, frustrated with traffic patterns in her neighborhood, hired an engineering firm to conduct a $600 traffic study. The firm installed cables on Powderhorn Road that measure traffic speeds, volume, and vehicle weight, according to a report from NorthJersey.com. But police say taking matters into your own hands, at least when it comes to the Department of Transportation issues, like what resident Donna Chaffee did, 
uh, is illegal. Chaffee was given a letter by the borough on Monday demanding that the cables were to be removed within 24 hours. Now, she says the traffic volume on the road exceeds the number of vehicles municipal officials claim travel on the road daily, the report said. Powderhorn Road is a popular shortcut for motorists navigating from or to County Road 502, but it was never intended to be a through street, she told uh, CBS2 in New York. She told the new station that the town has installed p- speed bumps and stop signs, but that these are only Band-Aid solutions. Um, <laughs> you know, I've kind of toyed with the idea of, Signs in my neighborhood, slow down, children at play, don't park in front of the house. What? <laughs> I'm sure there's a right way to do it and a wrong way. This is probably one of those areas where forgiveness and permission may have overlapped. You know, it's interesting because you need to be able to present evidence, especially when you're going up against a municipal entity, to say that you're wrong oh. because municipal entities are inherently always right. Um, but how do you go about doing that? The flip side of this is it's a, a a public road that's maintained and controlled by the New Jersey Department of Transportation. Do you have the private right to conduct a study where you are putting devices on the road? Um, you know, what is that going to lead to? Is that going to lead to everybody and their brother, you know, putting up speed traps and, and they want to measure the speed and the volume of traffic, you know? So I can kind of see where they say that you can't do it. Um, but then the flip side of that is, is, well, all right, I think you're wrong. How do I prove that? The only way to prove it is by some sort of expert testimony. And how am I going to do that? So I think that they make it difficult for you to prove them wrong. But on the other hand, I can see where you wouldn't want people out there conducting their own studies. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. That's, that's why I say forgiveness and permission may have overlapped her. She may have, maybe there was a nicer way to ask to get a study done. Maybe had she said, I'll pay for the study. <laughs> yeah. Well, their response would be, why don't you stand out there for a week and count the cars as they, they roll on by? Because they're not going <laughs> to help out at all. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be something, some serious job security right there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what are you doing? Count cars, man. <laughs> when I'm done with that. I'm watching grass grow. Uh, yeah, there's probably, you know, honestly, is there a, you know, do you go to a lawyer when you're in a situation like that? I mean, we have, I live in a small four-way stop, and it's 50 miles an hour into and out of the stop. We would love to have it knocked down to 35, a quarter mile to a half mile out. Um is there a recourse or a path of better resistance through a lawyer? There, there definitely is. I mean, in this case, right, she could have gone to a lawyer and she could have said, listen, I have reason to believe uh, that there's a higher volume than what they're saying. Come and look for yourself. He looks, she looks, and then they determine, well, yeah. And so now you could file a lawsuit requiring the town to reevaluate and to do their own testing. You know, I think the idea is that you want to compel the town to do their own tests and then make the application for uh, a, a change or, or restructuring of that of that you know roadway. I think her problem is that she did it without any legal help. She did it on her own. You know, she was a vigilante car co- counter. Um, that's the way they view her. But if she had gotten a lawyer, yeah, they could have done something. It wouldn't be easy because nobody in the municipal government or state government, for that matter wants to turn over anything, but you know, with a lawyer and the right legal channels 
you could do it. Now, the uh, the the bad side, the downside for that is she'd have to pay a lawyer to do it, unless you got sure. somebody that you know happened to be a lawyer in that town was also experiencing the same frustration with the traffic patterns. But yes, the answer to the question is, if you had gotten a lawyer, you would have been able to do something. It would have been a little. <laughs> at least you wouldn't have been uh, wasting your time and money. Yep. So, well, you still might have uh, been and- money, but. <laughs> At least you wouldn't get in trouble for it. That's right. (laughs) Oh, I love chicken, but I don't like it when it's been sitting around for a month. A driver is being accused of abandoning a chicken truck. Well, he was found. Uh, Authorities in Idaho have arrested the driver thought to have abandoned a trailer containing 37,000 pounds of rotten chicken at a western Montana truck stop, according to abcnews.com. Police say the trailer might have been sitting at the Flying J truck stop west of Missoula for a month before it was discovered this week with, of course, rancid juices flowing from the cargo department, dripping out of the pavement and attracting flies. Hall, the uh, (laughs) driver, abandoned the trailer after his lawyer, Dixie River Freight Incorporated, refused his demands for more money to deliver its then-frozen cargo to Kent, Washington, according to police. He left a chicken worth $80,000 to thaw and then rot when the fuel for the trailer's refrigeration unit ran out. He has not been charged with any crimes related to the abandoned trailer, but it was picked up on a parole violation. Oops. He now faces possible theft charges, though. Um, now, I used to was an operations director for a trucking company. I find it difficult to understand how you lose a trailer for a month. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> But you know, the bottom you line to, is, is this, is this, the driver is not going to be held liable for anything. Well, I think he's going to. If I were, if I were the company, I'd be suing him. Um, you know, you've got to look at the legal aspect of it. Is it a crime to leave chicken unattended for a month? No. Um, <laughs> although true. I bet you, you could probably come up with some sort of environmental issue that you've created by allowing the chicken juices to drip all over. But I think that the um, the case really focuses, if there's going to be a case, on the company because he either was an independent contractor with a contract or he was a, an employee with a contract um, or just an at-will employee. But however you look at it, he had a duty to maintain his obligation to deliver the chicken. He didn't do that. He wanted more money, so he held the chicken ransom, and now it's rancid, and, and you know they've got a cause of action against him. So... I'm surprised think, they didn't file theft charges against them earlier, because that would be the first thing you'd, you'd think, hey, you had our trailer, where is it? Right, right. You know, we we do some work for some trucking companies, and they rent out trailers, and when those trailers go missing for more than, you know, 25, 30 days, they're calling up saying, we've got to get our trailer back. So they must have a lot of trucks and very poor management to not realize that the truck was missing. <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly correct. Yeah, I don't think that I don't know that um, <laughs> the uh, the recipient of the chicken is probably definitely going to be looking for some compensation. Yeah. Right, you know, that's that's for sure. And that's going to be on the trucking company whether or not they go back on the on the driver is going to be uh, a whole other issue. But uh, I, <laughs> I don't know why they went looking for him unless he already charged filed against him. Um, now. Switch a little bit to uh, Hollywood, or at least the music industry. I could see this happening. You know, did they, did they ever make uh, just call Saul on uh, A and E? I don't know. I don't know anything about no? that. Oh, okay. If you're if you follow uh, Breaking Bad, you would 
you'd know that uh, Saul was the lawyer for them. But regardless, um, Hollywood and, and, and the lawyers, they, they get into this thing. And this is, this is a little bit different when it comes to who you choose to represent yourself on TV. Personal injury law firm has convinced a rapper, a famous rapper, to star in his commercials. Given there's all sorts of lawyers and law firms to choose from out there, and the way their services are advertised grows different and <laughs> more different every day. Um, standing in front of a wall, legal books, and a low-budget commercial definitely may not improve your or at least prove your intelligence to prospective clients. Sometimes clients are looking for that little extra something, that je ne sais quoi that they just don't know they want until they see it on their television screens at home. Say, for example, that you happen to know a famous rapper. So famous, in fact, that he was one of the highest-paid top entertainers at one time. You'd probably want that guy to appear in your commercials, wouldn't you? Well, one small law firm did exactly that. Winton and Heisted Law Group, a personal injury practice in Kentucky, hired the fellow <laughs> known as Master P to voice over their commercials. He was uh, more famous in the mid to late 90s, almost 20 years ago. Master P even includes his trademark grunt. Ugh! At about 18 seconds into the commercials. So you know that Winton and Heisted Law Group's personal injury services are legit. Um, Peter, who are you going to align yourself with? And why, why would you make it Master P? Well, I think I'm going to get Brad Pitt to play me in all of the commercials. And then That's it's just accurate. A, yeah, I mean, thank you. I'm glad you see those. Um, he just has a little <laughs> more hair than me. You know, That's right. This Not everyone does. You know, this, this is one of those things where um, I was actually talking to my wife about it, and she said, well, if they're trying to attract a certain clientele, and they are a plaintiff's firm, maybe it'll work. Uh, but this, these guys are in Kentucky. So, I mean, I don't know what client base they're trying to attract. Obviously, they're, they're, they're personal injury lawyers. Uh, they could be the quintessential ambulance chasers. And then they've got Master P., uh, and you should see the, the billboards and stuff that they have, too, because everything says, like, you know, his tagline, uh, on it. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> but it might work for them. They could get a slew of people that are sort of, um, you know, from a particular demographic. If they're trying to attract a particular demographic, they might be able to do it with this. But I was reading online, and uh, TMZ had an interesting take on this. So they, they wrote this story. It says, you got run over by a tractor, beaten at the bar, butchered at the beauty salon? Well, Master P will hook you up with the right lawyers. They go on to say, for some inexplicable reason, the legendary rapper has become the TV pitch man for the law firm of Winton and Heiston Law Group, personal injury firm in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, Master P apparently became friends with them after doing some sort of work with uh, Hurricane Katrina charity. Um, and has decided that uh, he was going to help them out. So, you know, it's interesting. It certainly attracts a lot of attention. This I was going to say, more attention than anything, yeah. Yeah, this small law firm has been on TMZ, on the news, all because they got Master P. So even if you look at it and you say, well, that's really, really stupid. Would I hire that lawyer because Master P is there? You know, if you listen to the video, and no disrespect to Master P, and I'm not trying to start any sort of gang war, but Master P is not the most eloquent man. He might have been better off rapping the commercial, but, you know, it it did what I think they wanted it to do. It attract national media attention. Now you have to so say... Bad press, huh? Yeah. Now you have to say, though, if I was a client, would I go to 
that firm simply because Master P told me to. And I think that, <laughs> you know, it depends. I know that our clients, business clients, they, they wouldn't, nobody would go for that. They'd look at this sure, and sure. say, wow, this is just so tacky. But you might have injured people um, saying, well, if it's good enough for Master P, then I'm down with it too. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's it's not someone that's necessarily forking out a retainer every month. Yeah, right. It's, it's yeah. This is this is a personal injury contingency law firm, and let's see what kind of volume we can bring in, and and who knows, you know, maybe they'll give away autographed copies of masterpiece albums. Maybe you know, maybe masterpiece will come to your birthday party if you. And who knows? <laughs> Show up at your prelim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Master Master P will give the opening statement at the trial in the form of a rap. <laughs> And of course, end it with "ugh." Yeah, well, right. no bad press. That's kind of the way I look at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking about forking over retainers, uh, I, I, I can, uh, I, I, I know in, in my mind, I know that you're gonna. You probably knew this was coming, Peter. Uh, psychic lawyer billing 250 bucks an hour, not for necessary lawyer, lawyer skills, but for readings. ABAJournal.com telling us that Mark Anthony, obviously among the lawyers who found an alternate career after law school. Uh, I think if you're looking for an alternate career, then you probably didn't pay attention in law school or you may want to join a different firm. Anthony, a Florida lawyer, graduated from Mercer University's Walter F. George Law School and wrote a book called Never Letting Go. There's a six-month wait for a telephone reading for this guy who charges $215 an hour According to Huffington Post Weird News contributor Myra Shannon, cost too pricey for her, but she spoke with the psychic lawyer on the phone about his background. Anthony said his mother and aunt were both psychics. Well, of course, that would make him one. Um, not, I think it would just make him an Anthony. His mother complained about heat and death everywhere in a visit to the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas a month before the fatal fire of 1980. Eighty-five people were killed during that fire at the MGM Grand. Now, Anthony told Shannon that he usually sees the spirits in his mind's eye and feels them as physical sensations. Sometimes I hear things he says that possibly could be the voices, and uh, significant bits of music. His readings, he says, help people deal with grief, (laughs) deal with an empty wallet. In a February 2011 story at ABAJournal.com, Anthony had landed a $90,000 a year job at at a clerk's office in Brevard County, Florida. Huff's story had no mention of that job. Unfortunately, Anthony's website says he appears on radio and TV as a psychic medium, legal analyst (laughs) in high-profile murder cases, and as a paranormal expert. So I guess if you continue to tell everyone something, eventually they'll believe it. Well, if he was really psychic... He should have known not to waste his money at law school because he would be in a you know, career. There you psychic. go. Unless his whole his whole thing is maybe he solves mysteries based upon his psychic abilities. Like there's a TV show out there like that. So I, I was kind of hoping he would just you come to him and say, "Ah, eh, you're going to get found guilty, man. Let's just take the take the plea bargain." Yeah, no, that would be. <laughs> I'd pay for that if I was a client, right? <laughs> It's amazing how this guy never sees a courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> if, I'll tell you though, if I was a psychic lawyer, I'd be trying to to dial into the lottery numbers so that I didn't have to represent anybody anymore. I could just sit back and collect my lottery winnings. But uh, there you go. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to start uh, walking around the office saying, 
I sense heat and suffering. Maybe I can get a gig as a psychic lawyer. Or oh. as a rapper. I just end every statement no. with, uh. <laughs> but, of course, you'd, you'd know <laughs> way in advance that you'd have to say that. The the whole thing with, I've, have you ever had any dealings in your cases with psychics? Um. No, unfortunately, no. I that would be very entertaining, but I haven't. I mean, because I mean, some people, uh, uh, you know, well, probably more. And I asked the app, application. I would say probably more of a prosecutor. Uh, pro- prosecutors uh, probably tend to imply or employ them more than anyone. Say, yeah. gosh, can we find this? Or investigators, I guess. But uh, yeah, I just don't. I don't. I personally don't buy into it. Oh, I don't either. I don't either. I, I even that uh, the Teresa, who's the Long Island medium. I don't know if she's on TV out by you, but yeah, I've heard the name. I, I have a hard time believing any of it. I just, just you know, all these people, John Edwards, who was big in the '90s and early 2000s, um, all these people are ultimately proven to be some sort of of, of con artist. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's actually a terrible thing when you give people. Hope and, and I guess you can look at it and say, well, even if I was just pretending to be a psychic, I'm giving people hope, I'm helping people with closure and that sort of thing. I think it's a con, I think it's a scam, but you know, you, you don't have anybody that can say definitively there's no such thing. So True. these people continue to be out there, um, you know, and, and there's always a there's always a way out. You know, if you were psychic and you're going to help me pick a jury, why didn't you know that this juror was going to go the other way? Um, well, I was, it was confused and clouded and, and, you know, the spirit wanted this to happen, all kinds of stuff like that. So I'm sure you'd happily pay two fifty an hour for that service. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you can go down to the Jersey (laughs) shore on the boardwalk, pay $15 and get a whole psychic reading. Maybe you could take, you know, the the, the great, the gitchy goomy and and bring her into your farm and help her, you know, make a career. Take a picture. The spirits tell me juror number three. <laughs> There's your reasoning for. Uh, uh, we'd like to excuse this juror and that juror. Our psychic says it's just a no-go. There is a dark cloud over <laughs> juror number three. We'd like to excuse them. She cast in fire. Uh, please don't. <laughs> Wait, wait, he has uh, so many uses, though, because now I don't even have to worry about ban the box. Just bring him in. What do you think about this one? There you go. No dark thoughts. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. They... <laughs> I'm going to call I, him up yeah. to see if we can get him to come work for me. <laughs> you have to, have to pay him more than 90 grand. I mean, the guy that's making okay coin. Yeah, you know, I laugh, but he's probably making uh, more money than, than most law firms are. <laughs> And not delling out any legal advice whatsoever. That's right. Here's, here's my disclaimer. I'm not responsible for any legal advice that I give. It comes from the other dimension. Yes. Channeling Oliver Wendell Holmes. I'm sorry. Johnny Cochran told me that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure he could go on and on. I could. Now I, now I want to interview him. He's yes. got to come on a Thursday show. <laughs> I bet you he knew I'd be calling. <laughs> well, he he already knows you're book him. You're gonna book him. So he does. 
He's, he's not going to answer because he knows. He knows. And and that wraps it up, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm going to be able to let this one go. This one's going to stick around for the next few weeks. I can't help it. Yeah, walk into the office. I knew you were going to say that. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, that, uh, <laughs> that's a wrap. Just, uh, today. It, it, it's one thing to be a psychic, but I guess when you're – it's like a, a, a psychic doctor. If you, you start to combine – uh, a trade that can be doubted with a trade that is licensed like a legitimate <laughs> profession yeah <laughs> it just um, it, it, i'm not sure which one it degrades more <laughs> oh, as a lawyer you should know better but as a psychic you should know better than to be a lawyer because you're better at being a psychic that's right so. that's right Oh, well, that's going to do it for uh, this week. I want to just uh, make make a couple of reminders. Um, Obviously, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, your feedback is really, really critical. Bob and I like to hear what you have to say. Do you like the show? Do you like the format? Do you like the length? Let us know. Go on social media. Email us at uh, info at utlradio.com. Let us know what you think. Um, Those of you who leave comments and feedback, we greatly appreciate it. I try to respond to everybody. And, um, you know, keep them coming. We really love it. Other thing I want to mention, talked about at the top of the show, the app. If you go to utlradio.com, there's an app link at the top of the page. It allows you to um, stream the show live, uh, watch our videos, and, and listen to our prior broadcasts. And it's got this useful feature where you can ask an attorney a question directly from your iPhone or iPad. Um, those questions go directly to my office, and a licensed attorney will answer those questions for you. We've seen a massive uptick in users of the app. We've been getting a lot of questions, and we've been calling people to try to get their feedback, and it's really been very positive. Uh, A lot of people have said really, really nice things about it, so I appreciate that. Um, To check it out, don't forget the special link for our sponsor, Audible audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio. There's also a link towards the bottom of our homepage, utlradio.com, and get your free audio book. So that's going to do it for today. We've got uh, Tuesday coming up, 10 o'clock a.m., live legal Q&A. Wednesday, 5 p.m. Eastern time, we've got uh, understanding or minding your business. And then on Thursday, UTL radio, uh, understanding business. And, you know, look at our social media stuff because, Bob, we've got a lot of good guests coming up. We've got um, professional chef. He was a top chef contestant, Fabio Viviani, coming up. That's going to be a great show. And he has a giveaway, an autographed book, which we're going to uh, you know start posting about. So get your uh, – I don't think I have that thing that says uh, if you're working with the radio station that you, you can't put your application in. So get your application, oh, get yeah, your, your entry in for that free book. Um, we're working on right. We're working on uh, Captain Lee from the Bravo show Below Deck. Um, he's expressed interest, so we're going to have him on. Uh, we've got a slew of authors and just you know uh, a lot of really good people coming up. It's going to be interesting. We've been talking to uh, Matt Roloff from Little People Big World, and uh, we're looking at getting him on. We've got uh, Cobra Rhodes and Alan Fisher in the works. They're the arm wrestlers. 
from AMC's show Game of Arms, which has been renewed during the process of taping. So a ton of, of interesting people. Uh, of course, no more interesting than Bob and I on Mondays, but uh, just Absolutely keep not. a look. Right, but, but you knew that. You did know that. Did know. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, that's going to do it for today, Bob. Um, we will be back next Monday with more stories, uh, more psychic attorneys. Maybe we'll have the psychic attorney. Uh, it's going to be great. I, I can't wait. So uh, <laughs> thanks, everybody, for uh, for listening live and for downloading later. Uh, questions, comments, please contact us, and we will get back to you. Uh, until next time, remember that there's power in understanding the law.